Hello and welcome to our latest edition of the GRC and Cybersecurity Podcast. In today's episode, in our Leaders in Cyber and Risk series, we have a very special guest, Ian Brown. Hi Ian, can you first introduce yourself and tell the listeners a little bit about the company you work for? Hi Matt, so I'm Ian Brown. I am the Group Cybersecurity Director at Spectrus. So Spectrus is a company that no one's ever heard of, but it's literally everywhere in your day-to-day life. And we specialize in precision engineering and instrumentation. What that means in real terms is that we measure stuff. And we measure stuff that's big and small, and especially if it's small, it's where we've got particular interest. And measurement is could be anything from the measurement of how many particles are in a vial of, of medication, all the way through to how much torque is in your car and everything in between. Fantastic. And one of the things that I was just going to pick up on there, actually, haven't there been a change in your role very recently, actually? Yeah, so I've, I've recently been promoted from the Group Cybersecurity Director to CISO. All right. Before we get a little bit further and we talk a little bit about your role in the company, can you tell our listeners uh, what you're into outside of work? Yeah. So anyone who knows me um, won't believe this, but I've gotten quite big into the gym in the past couple of years. So um, a few years ago, anyone who had worked with maybe four or five years ago would have scoffed a lot at the fact that I'm now at gym four or five times a week. But yeah, I'm big into the gym. I am currently trying to collect every single N64 game that was released in the UK. So yeah, retro video gaming. Uh, and I'm actually really big into reading as well. So a relatively weird and wonderful set of things. Fantastic. So I know uh, you just spoke a little bit about role. Can you tell me a little bit about what your role and an overview of how you got into your current role, a little bit of your history of your career? Yeah, so the current role as the CISO for Spectrus is oh, basically trying to define the cybersecurity direction for us and our group of companies. So we are a group of companies, each of the companies that Spectrus owns are autonomous of one another and do their own thing. So they're all their own brands, they're their own security teams, their own HR teams, so on. And I am here to try and herd the different types of compliance and different types of security and threat landscape models and put it into something that can be looked at more holistically and we can then try and drive excellence and and really great behavior within all of our companies and to get here hasn't been necessarily a a standard journey so I didn't go to university I started my career in a call center working for an airline then went through and spent a few years working back office sales and helping out sales managers and being the person that got the information out to them and then I managed to land myself a role in IT without any prior experience, really. Always had an interest in, in IT and computers and stuff, but didn't have any qualifications apart from a not that great GCSE. And then I, the company I was working with at the time, they were found in the security team and I was put into the security team and it kind of went from there, really. One of the interesting things that you said there was like obviously that you came in more of a non-traditional route. How has that changed, I guess, your way of thinking from... I guess, other people who've come through potentially a traditional IT background? Um, questions. I think, I think a large part of it is where I have a, a focus on the business first. And also, I know, well, like I used to know, how people would get around security controls without necessarily realizing that's a big problem. If security is a barrier and it doesn't help people improve, then they're going to go past it, much like they would do with health and safety or with any policy or process that they don't understand. By understanding how it actually is in, in a real-world business rather than just from an IT point of view, uh, it, it gives you a different insight into the way that people behave and the way that controls need to be put together in the first place. 
So can you talk roughly about the size and stage of the information security function so people can get a better sense of where Spectrus is at? Yeah, so we're probably about 30 people in the security team across the group of Spectrus companies. Um, I have a, in the head office, I have a team of four people, including myself at the moment. So we purposely keep the head office quite lean by design because the um, excellence and the knowledge should be in our operating companies where they actually make the money rather than some figurehead taking it all and being annoying. So um, that's kind of roughly the, the, the size and scope. And in terms of our journey, so I took over from our previous CISO who still works in the business. She was promoted to CIO, so she's my boss. And they've been running a security program for probably five, six years now. And I'm now taking over at the end of this program while we move from being a program function and converting that into more of a business as usual and changing the way that we do things. So one of the things that you spoke about there was who you report to. So one of the things I'd be quite interested in is like understanding a little bit more. You spoke about Spectrus's group structure. So how does it work with, I know you must have lots of security teams. How do they interact with you? How, how does that relationship work? So as I said, I report into the group CIO and um, I have dotted line reporting in from the companies. So the Opco's security leads or the heads of security, they uh, all have their own reporting lines into their own CIOs, CFOs and their own completely different setups. Um, but they all have dotted line reporting into me. And then we define the security strategy from the top. But in, in practice, I prefer a grassroots approach to make sure that it's actually relevant to the way that each of the companies actually work. And then we can provide that oversight across the board. And then they will talk to each other predominantly through security forums that we set up for the people to have to talk together. But as we've set those forums up, they're now talking to one another a lot more independently of us, which is fantastic because they have operating knowledge that they can share without needing to come via me or my team to facilitate that, which is a really nice position to be in. Yeah, it kind of gets them working together. They share information. It makes everything a lot, lot easier because I guess you're you're enabling them, I think is the main thing, is that you're enabling them to make the right decisions and, and, and work together on those. Um, the other thing that you mentioned is obviously you've had this large program of work that's been going on for a few years. How is that transition happening, obviously, from, I guess, establishing and setting up the program to being like more BAU? Can you talk us a little bit through that? Yeah, so after, so we, we broke the program of work down. So basically, it's an ISO 2001 model, and we, we've broken that program of work down into maturity functions. And then each of those areas are then assessed to reach a minimum acceptable standard of maturity. And the opcos continue to run those on their own, and, and they run to make sure that they're complying with the minimum set of standards. And as each one closes off, they finish the next one and close that off and finish the next one. And we're now kind of at the end of that. So while we're working out what happens next, is it going into a formal certification route or is it going to something else? That's a discussion point between us and Opcos. But in the same breath, there's a level of KPIs and dashboard reporting to keep people honest and true. And, and make sure that actually the impetus is there to carry on, but also the impetus is there that, that the business understand that actually this isn't one and done. This is a continuous evolving model of security. We can't ever be done. We never will be done. It will always be how can we enhance this and continuously improve so that that we are appropriate with our risk level at any one time, because our risk levels are obviously constantly changing as the world is changing. And I guess they also differ from business to business. And that's probably Absolutely. where for you it's very different. It says you have two different sides of organization, you're managing and making sure what's appropriate. 
how do you deal with that challenge? Yeah, so the scale is interesting and the geopolitical element is very interesting as well. So companies that are of a fair size will obviously have more staff to do stuff. The ones that are slightly smaller need a bit more help and that's just understandable. So where they need a bit more help, that might actually be one of us from the group head office function going in and helping them out. It might be us being an ear to bend and we can give the appropriate advice, whereas the larger teams don't need as much help. But ultimately, when it comes to it, we're here as an escalation path and we're here to help guide and to facilitate those conversations that may be beneficial. And I also think ultimately, where there is benefit in every company having the same or similar products, we can then get that and leverage our scale across the group. But equally, where companies have their own very, very unique and bespoke requirements, that can then be bought locally and it doesn't need interference from me. Yeah, I I like that because obviously... Again, they might be very different in nature, the kind of size and scale of the business. You can't have this one size fits all. So you kind of have to make a judgment based on what you're seeing to find out what's most appropriate. I think one of the other things, obviously, you're a FTSE 250 company. Can you talk us through the challenges of that? And I guess some of the upcoming things of it. I know we spoke before about the growth for the company and, and what that challenge presents to you. Yeah, so being being at the top end of the FTSE 250 but before the 100 means that there's always that pressure of we're about to hit the FTSE 100 at some point. Now, while the the business isn't necessarily pushing that as a strategic direction, we are growing. And by growing, we will continue to grow our share price, which means the level of threat and the level of attention grows. And I've worked in FTSE 100 companies in the past and dropping going from 250 to 100 does change your risk profile and it does it just changed the way that you've got to work and the level of compliance that you're under as well. And I think in particular, you know, if you if I was a a malicious actor and I wanted to cause problems, I'd be lazy and I wouldn't necessarily think about who am I going to attack. I'd look at the top 100 or top 500 companies. So you know, I'd look at the Fortune 500 and just go one by one by one down that list. And right now, you know, we're beyond the 100, so it's going to take a bit of time before someone gets to us and hopefully they're bored. But as we hit that hundred threshold, people are going to be less bored. Yeah, I guess become people become more aware of you. I mean, because yeah. although Spectre is a large company, because of the nature of your business, you're not always as no. We're we're, we're hidden, you know. We're, we're yeah. a, a nice secret. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess the other thing is obviously being listed. You're going to have the upcoming challenges of whenever it happens, the UK SOX requirements. And- Very much so. Yeah, and and speaking to a lot of my ex colleagues as well who've gone into this kind of space, is they're just kind of preparing themselves for a lot more rigor around their ongoing IT general controls. Absolutely. And I think the other thing is with UK SOX, as it looks at the moment, it looks to be quite light touch comparatively to the US SOX, but that doesn't mean it won't get harder. And <laughs> if, I, if I compare that to like PCI or Cyber Essentials, where, you know, a few years ago, it was relatively immature. Most people didn't really care. These days, it's, it's a lot less immature. And people who are PCI stoked, it's quite hard especially if you're a big company. So I expect stocks to go down exactly the same challenging route. Yeah, it'll start with the attestations and setting up the framework and then it'll move to actually, you need to break it individual scopes of the business. And again, nature of your business yeah. would suggest there might be quite a lot of scope. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so one of the things that we talk about is obviously who do you report to, but like what, what, who's in your team? What does your team, your direct team comprise of? So I have um, two cybersecurity apprentices who work with me and I have a um, cybersecurity business partner. So that's 
and me. So that's my team. Do a couple of vacancies that we might fill at some point. And then I report directly into the group CIO. And then on my peer level, we have the IT governance director, the head of enterprise services and the innovation director. Fantastic. And then in terms of like, I know you're saying hiring, like is your model all in-house? Do you have a hybrid model? How is it that Spectrus are working to build the security team? So we, we have a hybrid model. So we write source where we need to. So if we've got people or um, activities that are better off external, we'll grab that. And otherwise we'll have people in-house as well. So we're very much mixed. Fantastic. So as a leader, what are the things that you do with your team? So and I say things like what are the meetings, the frequency of calls? How, how do you interact with your team? So we have a four days a week, we have a daily stand-up. Um, so it'll be 15 minutes to half an hour with um, my direct reports. So we'll use that as an opportunity to have a catch-up, but also to air our concerns of the day, what's going on. And very much a case of it's a chance to get help rather than a, me checking up on people and you know <laughs> being a micromanager. Because we are a relatively small team and we are all 100% remote, we need to find that it takes extra effort to actually talk to each other um, and then on the fifth day of the week we would generally do um, kind of like our own version of a Kanban board basically and we'll go through our own version of a Kanban process to make sure that we're on top of things I'll have weekly one-to-ones and then some of our meetings will have crossovers so depending on what it is so as an example we're working on Chinese cybersecurity at the moment and the legal elements to that making sure that we remain compliant I'm doing that with a bit of our legal team as well from Daniela but then we'll have a couple of our um, people in my team will also join so we'll have all sorts of different variations and flavors of opinion because this is i'm not an island right and i need as much help <laughs> as i can to make this work properly <laughs> yeah and one of the things that interesting you talk about there is and i'm interested to understand it is like you talk about security and compliance do they both come in your remit or is it your focus security and some of the compliance so security and some compliance. So it mostly security compliancey things, but actually a lot of that falls under our um, IT governance director. Because of my experience handling it in the past, we work as a team because, like I said, literally we have to work as a team to be as effective as possible. Yeah. So how do you spend your time currently? What are the key priorities that you're focused on in the next 12 to 18 months? So I think... At the moment, one of the core priorities is cyber-physical. So we we make stuff. So we want to make sure that we're making things in the safest possible way and that we're not going to be impacted from cyber breaches or cyber attacks. And I also think that the change in geopolitical landscape significantly changes our threat landscape as well. We operate in most regions of the world. We have out plants and all over the place. So we need to make sure that we're responding in turn and what happens in the states and what happens with British governments does impact the level of attacks that companies get. So although we may be neutral or not have a stance on something, we can still be impacted as a result of a political statement. And we saw that in the news recently, not with us, Spectra specifically, but there was the um, cyber attacks in, I believe, Norway last week, where there was DDoS attacks because of the position the government had against a non-government entity. So it's very real right now. Yeah, and I, I guess, again, kind of the global nature of business means that there is a lot of those. And I get also the nature of some of the business that you do generally just makes it a little bit more like you have to be monitoring these things more actively than, I guess, some of your, not peers, but other organizations of your size. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And just translating that into real world actions. Now, there's a whole lot of noise out there. There's a whole lot of potential, but how much is that real? And how much do you want to convert into actionable pieces of work? You know, there's only so much string in the world. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's really looking at the threat data and actually looking at what is the actual risk to the business based on what you've seen rather because otherwise, I mean, threat data can be <laughs> pretty harrowing, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we see it sometimes where I'm looking at it and I'm looking at it going, unless you filter this down to meaningful things and, and present it in the right way, it can be a lot. Yeah, yeah, never ending. <laughs> <laughs> it's also trying to understand what's important, isn't it? Because I think, again, that's probably part of your role is helping the organisations to understand this is meaningful, this is important, you should be actioning this kind of thing. Yeah, and I, and I think, you know, there's different types of threat data as well, right? So you can get threat data that's log-enhancing threat data that may seem even more effective or MSSP is even more effective. And then there's the non-log-enhancing data, like the fact that the industry that you're working in is under extra ransomware attack at the moment. And it's identifying which is what and how much of that do you care about and how much is just periphery and might indicate an improvement in risk or a decrease in risk. So what are you doing at the moment that's really working? Um, I think the thing that's working the best at the moment is actually the collaboration between our companies. So in a federated model where we are technically independent firms all owned by one company, it's very easy to work in silos and those silos have been broken down, which is allowing us to be able to cross-transfer knowledge and cross-transfer data really nicely between companies to then build a more holistic and actionable set of data that allows us to continue to improve security everywhere. So is that allowing you to have like, I guess, an, an overarching view of what's going on to help determine risk a lot better? I mean, is, is the idea to try and just make us join up views to, to make things I guess, yeah, like you say, more actionable at a group level, but support other areas of the business. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it feeds a lot into um, sort of our internal KPIs and dashboards and stuff. So they've come a long way. Uh, and as, as our barriers are breaking down from solid working and as our technology continues to change, we're then able to look at that and provide much better quality dashboards and KPIs for ourselves and for the other people of interest in the business. One of the things that we spoke about before was the removal of fear, uncertainty and doubt. And you spoke to me about this in, in detail. Do you mind talking yeah. to the listeners a little bit about that? Yeah. So, you know, w- when you're working in security, it's really easy to be stuck, as I'm saying, uh, uh, with the volume of threat intel information out there, the volume of hacks that are happening in the news, you know, and the stuff that's in the BBC and the FT, they're the big headline pieces. All the stuff that's quieter or less important to an investor but it's still happening you know every minute of every day there's an attack somewhere when you start to talk to people about that it's really easy to drive a paranoia and it's really easy to drive well how do we possibly fix this and depending on the nature of the, of the person you're talking to they'll either want to chuck tons of money at you and tons of work at you or just give up you know, it <laughs> goes one way or the other unfortunately it's not just we don't have any give uppers but um we I've experienced it in the past when you're talking to people and you say, well, they're overwhelmed by the volume of stuff that's coming at you. But actually, a lot of it isn't relevant and a lot of it is sector-specific noise. It's not your sector. It challenges that we've already fixed, so why worry about it? And converting those news bites effectively into something that generates an action and something that generates awareness is difficult. 
and it's something that has to be done iteratively in my experience and it's, it's talking to people who are your stakeholders and understanding what are they interested in what am i interested in sharing and how do we bridge that gap and removing the fear uncertainty and doubt by just saying oh look at all these hacks that are happening but in the same breath saying look at these hacks happening that is specific to this specific thing makes it much more actionable, much more relevant. So rather than looking at my honeypots and going, look at the billions of attacks that are happening constantly, I'll consolidate that down and go, look at my honeypots, look at the specific threats that's coming from this very specific item. So I'm not going to say what I'm looking at. Um, <laughs> let's say, I don't know, a specific vulnerability or a specific country. I can then look down and go, look at this specific country. Obviously, they're not obfuscating where they're coming from. So you, we can make an assessment or an assertion of the type of attack that it is. This is that that type of attack or that type of CVE, this is what's being tried. Uh, and then also using other bodies that do external ratings for you, that gives you the credibility behind that to say, actually, from a, a security point of view, this ratings agency is saying we've got a problem or this ratings agency is saying we haven't got a problem. And sharing the good is as important as sharing the bad. So I think that's kind of where we I've landed on with dashboarding and FUD. It's a never-ending balance. And I think we're getting it right at the moment. I hope so anyway. <laughs> <laughs> And one of the other things you talked about there is vulnerabilities. And I guess, again, I can only imagine the challenge of vulnerability management in an organization with yourself, like yourselves. How do you know, like, because you must have however many opcos, how is vulnerability management done? Is that something that is a challenge or I can only... <laughs> yeah, so I, I think vulnerability management is one of those things that every company, any company who says they're 100% perfect is lying. Yeah, I don't think any company can be 100% perfect, but it's about understanding the true scale of, of the risk in front of you. So if you've got one vulnerability or one million vulnerabilities, if they're all behind a PC that isn't touching a network and it's not on the internet, does it really matter? And it's understanding that business risk and the business realities of the vulnerabilities rather than being prescriptive to a CVE rating. While taking on board other sources of knowledge. So CISA known exploited vulnerabilities are really, really useful. Now we're getting intelligence from CISA to say these are actively exploited in the wild. Different tools, you know, Qualys, Tenable, Rapid7, they all have their own proprietary risk vulnerability systems. So VPR ratings or whatever else allows us to help prioritize based on no business data. You then put that priority against business data and against architectural data. So if a system is eight layers removed from the internet and requires a billion different things, yeah, it needs to be patched. Absolutely, patching is critical. But does it need to be as patched as fast as my laptop? Probably not. Yeah, it's contextualizing it, isn't it? And I think this is where everyone gets really... like. And the velocity as well is really important. (laughs) (laughs) You can end up with lots of vulnerabilities that the vulnerability provider tells you is critical, but it doesn't know where it sits and i think that is one of the things that people always struggle with which is how do we contextualize vulnerability data using often technology but it's kind of piecing together three or four different data sources to get that priority list for yourself yes absolutely and recognizing that sometimes it's false positives you know these things yeah. are not infallible and we see that regularly that there are false positives over all sorts of vulnerabilities so what are the biggest areas of concern for the next 12 to 18 months for yourself um, so I think it's, it's definitely the geopolitical landscape and how that's changing on a regular basis to 
uh, and linking into the legal stuff that's coming out of countries at the moment. So while there's increased tensions in lots of parts of the world, that has an impact on the way that we need to operate in those parts of the world if we're in them. But then in, in the same breath, when two countries have a row, very often laws come out not long afterwards saying, oh, we've got data residency issues. And that presents other cybersecurity threats and issues from our side because when there's data residency issues, you still need to transfer data. And how do you do that in a legal and compliant way while making sure that data remains accurate and safe and secure? So can you talk me through a little bit of the lessons you've learned probably from the last, well, if we if we break it into two parts, the first bit, which is COVID and then obviously post-COVID and kind of a return to normal, let's say. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think the, the biggest lesson I've learned is actually the value of people. So many people within our opcos, within our company, but also outside in, in the big wide world and where I used to work in the past. During COVID, went through a really stressful period in terms of changing dynamics of the way people work. So for us specifically, some of us were already hybrid workers, some were fully remote, some were fully in office. And recognizing that you need to change everything overnight is quite a, a task. And while it was achieved, at what human cost? And I think that looking back on it, we looked after our people really well, but we could have done better. Yeah, we as an organization that hire a lot of younger people, I think one of the challenges that we saw was obviously remote working and not having space to work. Like, there's so yeah. many things that you just didn't think of. Like I've worked remote one or two days a week for a long time. So you have a desk, you have a place and you know what that's like. And I think it was a challenge and thinking was, was it, is it the right thing for everyone all the time? And how would you enable them to work? It was just a thing that people really struggled with. And I think everyone took this blanket approach to start with and obviously adapted as time went on. Yeah, completely agree. I think in particular, the the younger people or people who just don't have the specific space for a home office, it's much harder. You know, mm. I, I not that long ago, I was in a, a one bedroom flat with my wife. I think we were struggled we're fortunate now not to be so we've got a room you know got my stuff behind me I, I can close the door when I leave and actually work has ended for the day for people who don't have that luxury it's sitting in the corner of their bedroom or on the, on the kitchen table it's a very different mental health scenario and a very different position to put people into yeah and I, I think we've learned obviously of get track of people actually have wanted to go back to the office as soon as we could get people obviously there was a lot of people who wanted to go back and then kind of that even that approach to going back hasn't been a blanket it's like some people have adapted to it because they've got kids and other things and other people want to be in the office and it's trying to have that sensible balance to make sure it, it, it works for everyone yeah agreed and we're very much the same so within spectrus we have our own policy and we're predominantly home workers first now um, and we have a shared office space in London where we can go to to collaborate. Um, some people need to go there more than others. I don't go very often at all. I'm very fortunate. But within our opcos, they have their own models that work for them, and they've canvassed their own staff to understand what they need to do. You know, so we, we, I think we've done a good job. But I, I'm maybe the cynic in me says we can always do better. <laughs> so hard, though, isn't it? Because unless people tell you, it can be hard. But you're trying to make the right decisions, and at least giving them the options isn't it i think that's the big thing it's like trying to give people the options for how they can return and and how they can work best yeah completely agree so one of the things that we always like to ask people is can you talk me through what are the skills that you think are really important for an information security professional so if you were getting into this field now what are the things that you'd be focusing on 
So I think communication is the number one skill above everything else in cybersecurity. So I don't actually think the technical skill is the most important thing at all. And a lot of people will disagree with me there. And I know it's a bit of a contentious opinion, but a lot of what anybody in security does, a technical person all the way through to a governance person, what we do is talk or email or write. We're communicating all day, every day and communicating often quite technically complex matters that needs to be translated into business language that someone who doesn't work in security can understand. Otherwise, you just get the glaze and you know, you've lost. <laughs> so I think the, yeah. the number one thing is, is communication. And then I think the second thing is probably organization. Because yeah. if you're working in a non, you know, I've not worked in a bank, but I know people who have, and they have much larger teams. They've got much larger resources because they have to because of the level of risk that they're under. When you're working in a less regulated environment to non-regulated, the heads are smaller, a lot less people. So um, you've got more to balance, a lot, lot more to balance. And forgetting something can be a problem sometimes. Yeah, I think I think for me, I, I agree a lot with the com- of the communication. Like, I think it's absolutely critical. I mean, obviously, you need to have some technical foundations, but if you can't express like the risk to someone in a business terms of like actually, if, if this is to happen it could cause X, Y, and Z mm. in a meaningful way and, and something that they understand, i.e. actually one of your critical services is going to go down. They're going to go, oh, right. <laughs> yeah. That makes a lot more sense. That's really important to me. Can we can we talk about this? I think it's an un, it's an, a skill that people tend to forget about. They seem to focus very much on the technical bit, but if you can't communicate and express these points in the right way, like you can have the best security skills in the world, but if you can't get people to implement them, it's going to be a... <laughs> Yeah, you've lost, right? (laughs) I think the other thing as well that I missed is um, willingness to learn. So whether or not you're working in a completely non-technical area of security or you're the coder that's doing everything, Cody and techie stuff, whatever it is, it's not staying still. Whether or not you're learning a new language, learning a new tool, learning a new log pattern, learning a new compliance framework, a new law we're constantly under threat and we're constantly under change so you have to learn stuff all the time and while the foundational knowledge once you've got it is quite helpful sometimes that pivots on a dime and then suddenly you're in a completely different space so if you're after a, if we're after a very static role security is not that yeah I, I mean and i think i think anything with technology if you if you're looking for a static role i think you've got to say actually that's that's one of the things i love about it is like mm. it's changing all the time it makes my job different every day but that comes with its own challenges and that's not for everyone no not at all you know that that level of unknown every day regardless of how experienced you are you should come across something unknown in most days just throw some people yeah you know, <laughs> friends of mine who don't work in in technology would be like mm, not for me <laughs> <laughs> so uh, i've only got a, a couple of questions left how are you measured what what does success look like so I was going to be really flippant and say like a ruler, but no. <laughs> so me- measurement for, for me, uh, we've got three measurements at the moment. Um, so we have to drive value, drive excellence and drive visibility. So internally, they're the three sort of things that we're looking at a lot at the moment. And value doesn't just mean pound value. It means value in, in multiple different ways. And I also think ultimately... As horrible as this is in the sound, it's by the number of breaches and how much noise and problems we're making at the very, very top. Now, if I have to go every day to the CEO, CFO, head of legal with a problem, 
I'm not going to look very good. And that's because we're not doing a good job. Regardless of how accurate or how valid some of those things might be, in the coming in day in, day out, there's clearly a control gap. Yeah. And that needs to be corrected. And I think genuinely speaking, that's probably how most security people are measured by the amount of noise that's generated. Yeah, which kind of, it always feels a little bit wrong, isn't it? Because actually, like, some of that could be completely out of your control. But I mean, yeah. I guess the other thing is, it's just taking that information and making sure you're actioning it. And look, it could be 10 completely different things. And that that's fine. I suppose it's when you see the same thing reoccurring that you have to address. Yeah, and I, I think you know, there's learnings that can be had from other more mature sectors. If you look at health and safety as an example, you know, they have within health and safety, whether or not it's an airline or a manufacturing plant, they're going to have near misses, they're going to have actuals, they can have issues, right? And physical issues leave a mark, right? Um, sadly, they leave an actual mark. And is every single one of those escalated up straight to the top? No. No, they're not, because they have their own categories and stales. And I think sometimes within security, because of the, the fear factor, it can be escalated too quickly. And that, that balance between knowing and not knowing is the anxiety-inducing bit. And I think that's the bit that, as a sector, we need to get a bit better at. And then, as a rule, we can be measured more fairly and more accurately. So if you had one wish and you could solve one problem in security, what would it be? Um, so I think in practice, it would be just getting basics done. So as a rule, in my experience in every everywhere I've worked, it's, it's always been a case of people look for the shiny new thing. We're always looking towards AI or ML or blockchain or whatever else is new at the expense of really, really solid, concrete, foundational behavior that means that the majority of stuff actually doesn't need to happen anymore. And if I could wave that wand, I would get everyone everywhere to do basics really, really well to the point where you can focus properly on those new fancy things that generate different type of value. Thanks. So we're on to the final question now. So if you could have any other security leaders, uh, risk leaders on this podcast, who would they be? Who would you like us to talk to next? So I'm going to like two people. I've got um, a chap called Tom Baker, who is the head of information security at the British Heart Foundation. So I've worked with Tom in two companies in the past, including the BHF. And um, it's really interesting hearing how charities have to secure themselves so differently to everywhere else with different levels of compliance and different budgets. Because, you know, what charities are doing is not about making money. It's about, of course... And I think the other person who I think would be really interesting to hear from is a lady called Nikki Keeley, who is the head of information security at British Airways. And the scale and size of British Airways is in- incredible. And understanding how they secure all those millions of people's of customer information, but then also make sure the planes stay in the sky would be very interesting to hear from. Thanks, Ian. So uh, I really appreciate your time today and thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you like to hear more from Ian, you can connect with him on LinkedIn. We'll put a, a link in the description to his LinkedIn so you can directly connect with him.